It was a case of, if we don't do it now, everyone loses their job. So we have to make some tough decisions. You're listening to the Elevate Podcast, and I'm your host, Robert Glazer. Join me as I talk to world-class performers about how they build their capacity and reach greater heights in leadership, business, and life, and how you can do the same. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. Our quote for today is from Steve Jobs, innovation distinguishes between a leader and a follower. My guest today, Zilla Bing Thorne, is a world-class leader. She was most recently the CEO of Future PLC, where she transformed the company from a struggling business to a thriving publishing giant with a market cap of over a billion dollars. Before turning Future around, Zilla was the CFO of AutoTrader and has established herself as a visionary leader in the publishing field. She's also a frequent speaker and board member of several well-known organizations. Zilla, welcome to the Elevate podcast. Hi, nice to see you. All right. I know it's been a whirlwind, uh, so I'm, I'm glad <laughs> we got to make this happen. Uh, get you in one place for a week. Uh, I always find it interesting kind of starting from the beginning. So like, what were sort of the things that stood out for you in your childhood in terms of what did you enjoy? What did you like to study? Did you have an affinity for business kind of from a young age? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I didn't have an affinity for business as a young child. Um, um, and I, I wasn't particularly academic either. I kind of just had this mindset of, you do what you need to do, but I wanted to have balance in my life. So I did a lot of sport and I had quite a lot of social life. However, one of the things that uh, occurred all the way through my childhood was this need to kind of be self-sufficient and independent. I came um, from quite a, a working class, poorer background. Uh, my parents separated in the days when it was quite uncommon. So in the, the beginning of the 80s. And my mum was fiercely independent in terms of, you know, she wanted to be an independent mum. And so this kind of drill of you got to provide for yourself, you've got to have freedom of thought, don't rely on anyone, work hard was kind of one of the real mantras growing up. And then interestingly, my father had had a completely different mindset. His was, he used to say to me, which when you think about my background was quite unusual, um, imagine what it would be like to be the top 1% in your field. That's what you should strive for. Whatever it is you decide to do, be the absolute best and try to be the absolute best. And we had no right to have that ambition, but it must have stayed with me because it's kind of percolated through my career then to kind of always be, you know, brilliant at what we do and, and, and do our best work. Yeah, I, you know, it's funny because as someone who's sort of self, has self-reliance as a core value, I, I recognize that there's a strength and sort of a, a thread in that sort of advice of don't don't rely on anyone, right? That can have, particularly when you're, you need to build a business, like, do you think that that was something you had to, was that a strength and a weakness at some point? A hundred percent. I mean, I think that just confidence that worst comes to the worst, you'll get it done. So right. that personal belief is really important when you're building a business or when businesses are going through tough times. But I think sometimes it's hard to build a team as a consequence because, yeah. you know, maybe you don't let people have the oxygen that they need all the time and, Certainly, it's something that I have been self-aware of in terms of, you know, trying to give my team more empowerment, actually give up some of the control, or the, you know, the letting people feel dependent on, on me. That's a nice work for me, if I'm really honest. I think, you know, I always will feel responsibility for things that I do, but yeah. So I think it's double-edged sword. So what did you do after university? Uh, so I actually joined a company called Nestle, who oh, are yeah. a food manufacturer. 
drink company as a graduate and I had no idea what I wanted to do. Um, and so in the absence of um, having a plan, I thought I'd become an accountant within a firm. Um, I thought if I learn about how the business worked from a numeric perspective, that would be a skill regardless of what industry I went into. Um, and then Nestle had such a great brand. Uh, from my perspective, I felt like I could have a career there. So I joined them and did my um, equivalent to CPA qualifications, but within the industry um, that way around. And then eventually you worked yourself up to be the the CFO at, at Auto Trader, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, about about 12 years later. So it was quite fast, the ascension. Um, and coming back to that point, I, I kind of thought, oh, I quite like what the CFO does. That looks like a really interesting job. I wonder if I could be a CFO. And, and I had set myself this kind of crazy goal of, I'd like to be the CFO by 30. And in parallel to that, I also wanted to have a family. It was really important to me to have uh, children. So it also was like, I'd quite like to have my first child by 30. Now, being nearly 50 and reflecting back on that, I kind of think, whoa, where was that coming from? Um, Which one won? Did both win I out? I did or? both. Yeah, both. I did both. <laughs> I'm surprised you asked. Um, <laughs> but I look back and I think, well, that was mad, you know, be careful what you wish for. So was that your first CFO ro uh, role at AutoTrader? Um, no, I was actually CFO of a big, a, a UK-based retailer, like a convenience shops. So we had yeah. 3,000 shops, about 20,000 staff, uh, private equity owned, um, and I was the CFO of that. Okay. So you're you're at AutoTrader, you're doing well. Someone reaches out to you and convinces you to take a look at this CEO role at Future. So it sounds like you're very goal driven. Had you thought about being a CEO at that point? Was that on the bucket list? Uh, yeah, it definitely was. And I think I had increasingly come to the conclusion that I was becoming frustrated as a CFO because you keep the score, you get to report the outcomes, but you don't actually get to make any of the change happen. And as a highly accountable person, I actually wanted to do some of the stuff. So I think I was probably quite frustrated. And what actually happened was um, the CEO uh, Auto Trader resigned and I stepped into the interim role for a year, but unfortunately I didn't get the position. And the new individual who came in as CEO kind of wanted his own team around. So I, I actually moved out the business. And so I was kind of like working out what was I going to do next? And then I got this phone call about future. So we talked about a little bit of this on a panel last year, like this, wh whoever did the sales job on you must have been an incredible salesperson because so Future owned all of these magazine brands, right? If I understand the company was still public, but it had lost 90% of its market cap and was like worth about 30 million pounds and it was kind of a mess. So what was, what, what was the pitch and what, what intrigued you about stepping into this business that was seemed to be going off the precipice of a cliff? Yeah, when you put it like that, I'm not <laughs> sure. <laughs> Those are the facts, right? I, maybe I had a, my notes yeah, they correct. Are the facts. Yeah, that, okay. that's, that's exactly what it was. Um, I think I I had left Auto Trader, and I, I definitely wanted to do something different, but I wasn't completely sure what that looked like. And I'd had quite a fast career and quite an intense career up until that point. And so I was thinking maybe I shouldn't take a full-time job. Maybe I should go part-time. And when Future phoned me up, they had said, um, would you like to be CFO? And I said, no. Uh, would you like to work at Future? I said, absolutely not. It's a terrible business. 
And then he said, well, you know, we think you're overqualified, but you could come and do it three days a week and then you could have some balance in your in your life and do some other things. And I thought, well, that, that actually sounds like a really good compromise because I had wanted to do other things in my life. And I had three quite young children, so three kids under five at this point. So I said, yes, predominantly more about lifestyle rather than about the opportunity in the future. I was thinking this is going to work for me as an organization. When I then got into the business, I realized that it was much worse than I had thought. <laughs> worse than what you knew on the surface, which was, yeah, was worse down. Than the, yeah, so worse than that, because they actually weren't <laughs> making any cash. They were going bankrupt. Right. So uh, we had a real existential challenge within the first six weeks because we were going to run out of money. So, so you're the new part-time interim CEO of a company that's got six weeks of basically money left. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. That's how it was. So it was, it was pretty. Uh, so I, I stopped being part time quite quickly yeah. <laughs> and became very full time. So that lasted amazing. Um, did you get paid with IOUs though? Like, what was the? How, how did that work? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, you know, it's funny actually. I used to say to um, uh, shareholders many years later. In those first couple of years, I, you know, I wasn't getting paid very much at all. Right? You were. It was more about the belief that if you put the hard yards in at the start, you would get your reward in due course because the stock price should follow. But you it was an act of confidence in myself to yeah. back myself to achieve it. Um but there was certainly I remember there was one month where money was so tight. I remember saying that I, I will literally take an IOU if we need it and <laughs> uh, pay me next month. Which tells you how quite how desperate it was. You know, there was a moment there was certainly a couple of times where I thought I'm not sure we're going to make the payroll. So um so yeah it was pretty tough. So what did you see, like, what was it that you saw in this opportunity and what did you start doing? So I guess first, what was the stabilize the patient and then what was the strategy to kind of grow? Yeah, so stabilizing the patient, I mean, it sounds really old fashioned, but actually just getting to generating cash is stability because once you have cash coming in the door, you've got freedom to choose. You can draw a breath, but when you don't generate cash and you're running out of money, it's a finite point. You know, there, there is a, a day when there isn't any money left. And so I made some tough decisions. We, we sold a couple of a few brands that were actually really profitable, but we could get a lot of money for them and that would pay the bank off. And so by reducing the debt and paying the bank off, suddenly we had a little bit more of time to breathe because, you know, the bank were quite concerned about not getting that repaid. Um, and then we, we we made quite some quite radical changes to the employment conditions and the number of staff we had, and none of that is none of that is easy. You know, you never make these decisions yeah. easily or without a heavy heart. However, we were a business that had been formed in the old days of the magazine industry when these were magazines would be multi million pound profit centers, and so the world was was different and. You know, the employment model was quite different. And in a digital economy where there's lots of um, freelancers, that really changes the cost equation. So we we actually put the entire organization on notice of redundancy hmm. and then went through a period of consultation to renegotiate some of the terms that we, we just couldn't afford. We couldn't afford some of the, the benefits that, that were in existence. And then in the end, about 30% of the business of the staff were made redundant in the process. But everyone else who jo- who stayed were aware of we had reset. This was a position we could grow from. Um, they understood why those changes had been made, and we'd explained it. And so it was it was a case of we don't do it now. Everyone loses their job, so we have to make some tough decisions. 
So over that first six to nine months, we we sold off some of the key assets and we made really difficult decisions on the employment and the headcount required in the business. And that forces you to really consider which of the work that we do actually really makes a difference and which of the work that we do makes us feel good about ourselves. And don't get me wrong, I think that um, it's nice to do work that makes us feel good, but but fundamentally we have to first of all do the work that actually makes the business economic and generates the return. And so we became very ruthless at prioritising how we spent our time and what we did with that. So both those two things combined really started to make a difference and we stabilised and we started to get be in a position where we could afford ourselves. The other big point around this was probably thinking about our working capital. So we were historically a print-led advertising business. Advertising agencies are notoriously bad payers. Um, and so you would have this big long lead time between when we would need to pay our bills and when we would get paid. And so we pushed harder into subscriptions because if people subscribe to magazines, they pay you in advance. And we also started to to do a little bit of events because people buy tickets for events in advance as well. And so by changing the mix of the products in the business, that allowed us to generate a bit more cash into the business before we had to pay our bills. So again, that kind of helped from a cash flow perspective. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? Two years ago, I bought a dual suspension mountain bike for the first time, and it pushed me to ride trails that I had never been willing to try before. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has exceptional capability that will have you seeing the possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. The Lexus GX comes with available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, best-in-class towing capacity, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. I've seen the new Lexus GX popping up all around my town, and not only does it have the capabilities to take you to new places on and off the road, but it's a great-looking car. The new Lexus GX is ready to raise the bar for you. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and free. LinkedIn isn't just a job board. It helps you identify and hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. Case in point, last year I asked the CEO of a major ski resort how he got his job, and he told me that he saw it on LinkedIn and decided to apply. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. The team at LinkedIn is also constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process easier and quicker. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash practical. That's linkedin.com slash practical to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. So there's an interesting thing in there. You know, there's been a lot of articles over the last year, I think written by academics and maybe with a little bit of survivorship bias that, you know, layoffs are always horrible and shouldn't be done and always have negative consequences. And a lot of those things are true, right? You know, and the the difference where some of these companies are doing layoffs and have 10 billion in cash, 
right? And you'd argue, well, that could be a little short-sighted, but there's a fair amount of companies for whom if they can't right-size the ship, that there is no tomorrow and it puts everyone at risk. And these, I don't think these are decisions that anyone want to make, but at some point you have to try to keep the ship afloat. Um, and I, I just think some of the narrative, particularly that's come out of the academic world in the last year would lead you, I mean, I know someone recently that waited way too long to make some smaller hard choices and then end up having nothing but horrible choices, you know, in the end. Yeah, I, I feel really strongly about, about that point, which is um, no one ever went to work thinking my dream job is to lay people off, right? That's no one's idea of why they come to work and why they do what they do. However, if we don't make the tough choices, someone else makes them for us. Yeah. And I think that you have a responsibility to the organization and the stakeholders to be, as a leader, to make the tough choices as well as the easy choices. And, you know, certainly my experience uh, at Future and actually much earlier in my career when I was in that uh, retailer that I talked about, we needed to make some tough choices in order to make sure there was actually a business to, to survive and to prevail. Um, so, yeah, I, I certainly would say that, you know, we should always act humanely yeah. and we should always be honest with people and we should do things as kindly as we can. But that shouldn't stop us making, you know, making what is the right decision at the time. So, so you stabilized the patient. I know the magazine wasn't wasn't the little sort of glimmer in your eye in terms of what you saw. What what did you see as like the and from your time at Auto Trader, the asset that Future had that you thought you could really build around? So the really the big thing for me was um, when you started to think about the type of content we wrote. So so Future owned brands like uh, Tech Radar and uh, games radar and pc gamer and so it, it its legacy was in really niche special interests and two particular content types what should i buy so a review what game should i play what uh, headset should i buy and then um how do i optimize it so how to's and reviews is how we talked about it in those in those days and so you suddenly realized that online you were the last point of the decision-making funnel. So I think what people now talk about is intent marketing, but we were kind of, we were the, the last place you went to before you then made the decision to go and buy a pair of headphones or a new laptop. And when I had been an auto trader, it was very similar because we were the last point of research before you then went to the dealership to buy your car. So you would you would shop around, you'd look for the best deal, you'd find the one that you wanted. And over the time I was an auto trader, it, it got to the point where, you know, um, people went to visit one dealership after they left the site, whereas, you know, the beginning of the journey had been like four dealerships. So, so people stopped shopping around. So you really, you narrowed the funnel for them. Really narrowed the funnel. Yeah. So we were, the, we were the place, the last place before you actually transacted. And so I thought, well, we could do the same thing for content and bring the car into the shopping journey. Then we could actually make it easier for the customer. And at the end of the day, our job is all about making the experience as easy as possible for the consumer. And so what we thought about was, which is what is now today affiliate marketing, but honestly, 10 years ago, it didn't really have a name as such at that point, um, was we built um, some technology that allowed us to go out and basically get the best price for a product at that moment in time. So we were able to do price comparison for the products we were recommending. So we didn't just bring back the Amazon price, but we'd maybe bring back Best Buy and Target, for example. And so then suddenly the customer had a choice where could they buy it? What was the best price? Who did they trust? Um, and that really drove a brand new revenue stream for us, which was revolutionary for the business because it it was incremental to the existing content as opposed to having to create new content for it. 
And that that was, you know, a real game changer. So instead of you have these websites, which had a lot of visitors, they had articles, they had content, instead of just running untargeted banner advertisements against them, CPM stuff, which was the sort of, I, I guess, the standard for people running sites like that, you started to say, look, if we're writing about computers, you know, we might as well link to the computer that we're talking about and provide people shopping options and then optimize those based on which ones convert better, have a better user experience otherwise, sort of this content to commerce lead. That was exactly Yeah. Yeah, that was exactly. And so of course suddenly you already you still had your banner ads because this was yeah. part of the the content journey was where yeah. to buy it and what's the best price. So it became double monetization, which was you know fantastic. How did you think about? I know there's a lot of questions. A lot of people don't realize that many of these decision sites or otherwise are are not doing this out of goodness of their heart. They are they are monetizing. But how do you how do you deal with content integrity in that environment? Is it is it one team? Is it two teams? Like who decides what you're going to write about, and then who decides how to monetize that in the model? Yeah, so that's a brilliant question. So editorial. Our business was about creating great content, and so editorial integrity has always got to be the top of the tier in terms of you know what the brands do and the editorial independence. And so we would always let editorial decide what their point of view was about laptops or a review. We would say, you know, you're you're in tech radar. We want you to write about mobile phones. So we would tell them the category we'd like them to write about because we knew that's where the, where the user demand was. Outside of that, they could they could decide if the iPhone was getting three stars or five stars. That was entirely up to them, and it was up to them around that. What we built with the e-commerce business was a completely separate team, and that technology actually acted independent of the of um, the editorial team. So it would read the page, and it would say, "Okay, this is about um, Dell XP thirteen laptops," and it would go into the database and actually pull out the e-commerce uh, pricing widget. So there wasn't actually any person that was having a conversation about the review. So the, the 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 e-commerce part of the journey didn't know if the review was good or bad. It just knew to be helpful, we should bring back, where can you buy this and what's the best price? So if you said, don't buy this computer, it would still come back It'd with still the still say price. where to buy yeah. it. Yeah. So, you know, yeah. you could, with hindsight, you could optimize that journey a little bit more, right? right. Um, but it did mean from our perspective, we were quite happy that there was always independence. And we never sold, you know, top spot in the search, in the price return. So Best Buy couldn't buy the slot above um, right. Amazon. So it was always what is the best outcome um, as opposed to, you know, who's paid for the listing. And, of course, that then helped with the integrity of, of the content as well. So you rebuilt the business model, and then we'll talk a little bit about how you did that through acquisition. But I know the other thing you're passionate about even for a numbers person is culture. So what, what, how did you like, when you come in and you actually have to change culture, that's a huge task. So I first have like, how do you define culture? And then what did you do to particularly again, given the, some of the hard decisions you have to make to get the team to rally around and sort of change the culture at a really old company? Yeah. So I think that you kind of, you don't get to decide the culture as the CEO, that's my first view, which is I think an organization tells you where its culture is. And then what we do is we evolve it based on, you know, what we believe our principles are and, and our objectives. And so I think that culture is everyone in the business. But your alignment around a purpose and alignment alignment around a set of behaviors, I think, is then what kind of manifests in the culture. 
And so I think that for me, that that's what happens. When I joined Future, there was no strategy. There was no purpose. There was no values. None of these pretty standard business tools existed. And so what we did was we ran over about a six-month period a series of workshops with about 30% of the organization. Like, how would you describe the culture? What do you think are the important values? What makes us, you know, exist? What's our right to win? And those then got codified into uh, a statement on purpose you know how do we make our business make money and then a set of values and behaviors which then underpinned everything that we then did and then we used those values and behaviors to then hire again so people would be interviewed on competency but also on cultural fit and we would do both interviews to make sure that we were not just hiring skills but also hiring and then we were really open about this is how we want to be there were there was a population who didn't want to change, who wanted to hold on to the legacy. And one of our values that we put in place was about we're proud of our past, but we're excited about our future. Mm. And I thought it was really important for us to pay respect and homage to the business that had been, because it had been a successful business. And for lots of people who had been at Future a long time, they wanted to hear the acknowledgement of the past. However, what was really important for us culturally was but enough, we now need to build on that and move forward. Right. The magazines are not not the way forward. So. Yeah, exactly. It doesn't yeah. mean they weren't brilliant products, but the future yeah. is not in magazines. And so it was that type of thinking around, you know, acknowledge what happened, but we have to look forward was how we went about changing the culture. And so then we would say to people, you know, if you don't want to be here, you don't have to. But if you are going to be here, you have to get on the bus with us. You have to come on this journey because we won't be successful if we're not aligned. So that was a key part for us. And then, you know, personally, I've always been a very accessible CEO. So I've always had a really open door policy. I would write a CEO email every week. You know, we would do a regular town hall. So there's always been a kind of open narrative around, you know, you can ask me anything. I might not like it, but I'll answer your questions because I think that people need to feel that they can ask the questions that that are sitting bubbling away um, for them to become aligned and believe in what you're trying to achieve. Yeah, there's a few things on there. One, I assume it sounds like some people did opt out, right? Yeah, they did. Yeah. Yeah. And two, I agree. I I think I've tried to have a similar approach in my time in leadership, which is like, you know, I always said, look, I'll answer, we'll take any feedback and I'll answer it three ways. One, super interesting, and we should fix that right away. Two, super interesting, but it's complicated. And we're going to look at that and we'll think about it. And three, we're not going to do that. Like, that's just not... (laughs) (laughs) you know, who we are. And and I think with a lot of different things in anonymous tools these days, sometimes the vocal minority, you know, in the company, a couple of people really just don't like everything, tend to try to make their presence a little bigger than it is. So I assume you had some people who just opted out or sometimes saying, look, I, I understand that, you know, we were all virtual and some people really, we should get offices. I was like, I understand that you want an office, but if I pulled the company, 99% of the people do not want an office. So we can either change, <laughs> we can make 99% of the people unhappy, or maybe you need a different organization that has an office. Yeah. And that's exactly pretty much how we were as well in terms of, you know, either you accept that this is the majority or you should go somewhere else because, you know, the minority, you can't manage through the minority. And I, and I think, and I think this is one of the really sad impacts of the social digital environment that's happened is there are lots of people who anonymously can be quite distracting 
yeah. in an organization. And if you have an organization which is very open, these people can be quite noisy. And, you know, we found, unfortunately, over the years, um, we used to do like live questions in Slack when we were doing a town hall. But people would be slightly anonymous, anonymous about how they were doing that, but be really quite disruptive. And it's like, well, yeah. there comes a point when actually you're going to make us have to close down some of these comms channels. And so it was like questions in advance, not because we wouldn't answer them, but because we needed to make sure it didn't become like a hijacking of the session or something that was maybe affecting five people in 3,000. And you'd say things like, why didn't you talk to your manager about it? And there wouldn't be an answer to that, right? It was just... I've got an audience here. I want to. I want to make a big drama. So yeah, we've been. We were pretty clear about you know that's fantastic. Let's sort that out. Or that's a problem. We're really sorry. Let's fix it. Or this is what it is, and it's up to you to choose. Hey, Elevate listeners. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify is the partner you need to keep the cash register ringing for your e-commerce business. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading platforms. I advise a lot of companies in the e-commerce space, and almost all of them have migrated to Shopify. And as a buyer, what I love about buying from Shopify-enabled sites is that they already know who I am, and I don't have to create a new account or enter all my payment info the ShopPay service makes it faster and easier to buy, which surely helps with conversions. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., and Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com elevate, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com elevate now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash elevate. Yeah, like I just think that you can't be everything to everyone. And we we went through a simpler thing. We had a tool that was anonymous feedback while we were early on. It was super helpful when we were small. And as we got bigger, uh, we just found it really not helpful. And we trying to have this open culture and say, look, I think anonymous channels are helpful for if people aren't responding for safety, for issues of sexual harassment or otherwise, where people really feel like they need a safe, anonymous channel, but not because they're just not willing to discuss it in an environment that's provided psychological safety. So someone in this anonymous thing says that our management is terrible. Like what they really mean is they don't like their manager. And so I think as I am probably you were like, all right, well, who's the manager? Because let's, (laughs) let's deal with the problem. Not like, or people tend to kind of generalize sometimes when it supports their point. So like all new managers are horrible, you know, at Acme Corporation. Well, you have a new manager and they're bad. And maybe there's a bunch of things we could do to fix that. But it doesn't it doesn't help to try to drum up, you know, everyone else in this. And I think, you know, the employee perspective on this, it's it's I always say like someone said there's no hecklers, you know, on the stage. Like one of my lines is always around when people are frustrated around something. Well, look, these are people just like you on the other side, trying to make good policy, trying to make good decision, you know, and and just like you would. And and if you understand all the things that they're trying to solve for, you'd realize that it's not that simple. So like, again, how can we do this? And I, yeah, I think the anonymous has a place, but if you want to solve these problems, you need to understand where they are and who they are and those sort of things. Totally agree. I totally agree with you. 
Now, there are companies that aren't psychologically safe and where it's not okay to speak up and all those things are true. And then I, to me, that's a totally different ballgame. But I think yeah, where and you... And that's not, that's not what, what I think what we're talking about. I mean, yeah. I think we would all acknowledge there should always be a route for uh, anonymous, safe, whistleblowing, calling yeah. out, you know, and I would never, ever take with that. It's more around, I don't think we should have lunch on Tuesday. I think we should have breakfast <laughs> on Tuesday. Yeah. Is that type of commentary, which is just, you know... Or as you said, I've got a problem with my manager. Well, actually, I, I care about that. I want to know what's going on, but I yeah. can't do anything with your information. So now you've told me I've got a problem, but I don't know how to fix it because your information is anonymous and general um, yeah. as opposed to Pacific. Yeah, I, I ran into an issue too at one point and had to ask feedback on like, what are you trying again, trying to have town halls or trying to have open questions, but some people, you know, what do you do when someone states a question that has a completely false premise on it? You know, like for instance, like everyone is leaving because of, you know, this, well, it's, it's hard, it's hard to kind of walk that back. Right. But I, again, I think people have to realize too, I really like the, you know, you can only say I, my experience, like don't like it, just particularly in leadership teams, trying to pull in other people or or sort of corral them to kind of make it sound like it might be a bigger issue, but I think it's better to actually just address what you're talking about from your perspective, which is completely valid. Yeah, exactly. So the other thing that you were enormously successful with was your M&A strategy. So you, you, you figured out this engine Right. And you figured out that if you had more content, you could run more properties through the engine. Was that the core of the MA thesis? Yeah, that was exactly. I mean, we were we were still quite a small business at this point. We were, you know, profitable and cash generative, but you know, in quantum terms, maybe making five million dollars of profit. So it was pretty fragile. And we were we had a lot of overhead and we had this fantastic engine, but at the same time. I said, like, if we miss a quarter, we catch the cold, we die of pneumonia. You know, it was it was all very fragile. And so one of the key things for us was, well, if we can buy businesses that are undermanaged or that have great content but don't have a route to monetization, we can put them onto our platform and then suddenly we can get bigger in terms of absolute scale, but we can also, you know, drive genuine returns. And so that was the original genesis of the M&A strategy and probably the first the first three or four transactions were more about just making the business bigger. Yeah. To give it a little bit more stability. And then after that, uh, it was much more about can we accelerate the strategy faster? Do we have an opportunity here to do something that other businesses can't do? So do we have a competitive advantage? And so I, I think in the 10 years, we did about 25 MA. So we didn't do anything for the first couple of years. So it was about three or four transactions a year um, once we kind of hit our cadence, which was Pretty exciting um, and pretty transformational for the business as well. And I think I heard you say you didn't consider any of those a failure, right, at the end of the day? No, there's not a single deal that we did that didn't meet our financial objectives. So I want to dive in this. Look, there's a lot of people on this call who lead acquisitions, who are part of acquisitions or otherwise. And I would say generally there's a 90% failure rate. So if you talk to someone over 25 that has a 100% failure rate, like, let's go from the beginning on this. What what is your evaluation criteria of what makes a good acquisition? And then to me, that's that's half the equation. And then I think the other half is sort of the, which a lot of people just ignore. It's kind of like, you know, transferring an organ without any of the, you know, organ rejection or integrative practices. So what 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 did you do to identify the right target? And how do you know something was not the right target? And then what did it look like integrating those businesses? Was it 
we're going to sit down, we're going to figure out stuff, or this is our system and you're coming on our system and you were just honest about that? Yeah, it's a good question. So in terms of our financial um, analysis, when, when we would look at a target, we were we never put revenue upside into the financial model. So either we we could see a way to save money because we'd say we didn't need two head offices or you didn't need two Salesforce systems or whatever, or we were buying it cheaper than our own multiple so we could buy it and create value because we could make it more valuable as part of our group, which meant then that the revenue opportunity, which we always saw, was our upside. Now, things will always go wrong in transactions. You, you never buy what you think you're buying. There's always a surprise. So don't plan for the best case. So, so, so we plan for the worst. And so there there was always, therefore, you know, on almost pretty much every transaction we did, there was, you know, four or five revenue opportunities. And I would say one or two of them worked out and three or four of them didn't. But it didn't matter because we hadn't put them all into the financial analysis. And so you were able to absorb that. And get after that quickly. So that that was a, a really important point. And then we wouldn't we wouldn't buy anything where we fundamentally didn't think culturally we just weren't aligned. We couldn't make it work. So I remember there was one business we looked at and we really liked it, and the economics were fantastic, and it it was right on strategy. But it was a very strong brand, and it had a very strong editor. And when we sat down and met with them, we just thought you're never going to do what we need you to do, and this is just going to be cult of personality. Yeah, exactly. And we're buying the brand, but actually the brand is you and therefore this isn't going to work. And so we walked away from it. But And I think, you know, being prepared to walk away from something which in paper, on paper looks perfect because in the reality, our business is a people business. And so you have to believe that people can deliver what's on the paper as well, I think is an important point. And then from an integration point of view, we were we took a pretty hard line, which was this is how we work. These are the systems we use. This is how the integration is going to happen. And if you can see a better way, we want to do that. But we'll is do that, that before you acquired them or after you acquired? Like, were you upfront with that kind of in the whole whole process? I would or? say we got more upfront as time went on. Yeah, okay. I think you know it's one of those lessons that you learn, which is probably being a bit more honest about that. We 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 have a one system approach. You know, we want everyone to be on our payroll. We used to talk about in the first four months after an acquisition getting control of the accounts, getting control of the banks and getting control of the people as in, you know, everyone's on payroll, all the bank accounts are, you know, merged. Everyone's on the same yeah. email systems. You just, you this do was not a whole, this is not a holding company of a whole bunch of different. No, no, it was no, yeah. it was the exact opposite holding company. It was about fully integrating, but you do that really quickly. And then, well, it, there's a lot of change in that and a lot of, um, you know, it's a lot of disruption, you then get to the future state quite quickly. And so, you know, I talk to some people who do acquisitions like, oh, two years in, we're still migrating payroll. And I'm like, oh, my goodness, you know, like if you yeah. let it go for too long, people think it's never going to happen. You also, you end up having different cultures, right? It sounds like that was really important to say, this is our culture. Hopefully you like the attributes of our culture, but we're not going to we're not going to change our values and sit around. It sounds like best practices from a process standpoint, but not best practices from we're not changing our values and our mission and these sort of things. Yeah, and that was exactly it. And, and so what we would find is from an um, employee engagement score, the new businesses in the first year would have the lowest scores because they're going through so much change. But after that, they would profile the same as the rest of future. So if you could take the employees and the staff and you could keep them for that first year, then it was fine. It was just that year of change where where the challenges came through. And so that was where, we, where you know, you, you had to spend a lot of your time. And, 
And I think you mentioned it a moment ago. Without a doubt, on every every single transaction, the hardest part is the people. Because no one cho- no one chooses to get acquired, no one chooses your company, and then you're making them go through all these changes. And so it manifests in lots of different ways, but fundamentally there is just on day one a little bit of resentment around, I didn't ask for this, yeah. and now you're doing it to me. And then sometimes that gets worse because maybe their friend in finance got made redundant or you've asked them to you know change their policy about coming into the office or whatever that looks like so so it's always that's definitely the hardest part and you know the more we did it, the more we were of the view which was you we just must never underestimate what it looks like but based on what you said before i'm guessing it's like look we're going to acknowledge this you didn't ask for this you might not want to do this or otherwise but this is how we're going to do it and so please tell us if you're on board or not on board right and that is exactly what happened. And so that's why that engagement score would then change because the ones that didn't want to stay self-selected. Yeah. You know, they, they said, it's not for me. I'm going off somewhere else. And then ones that stayed were on board with what we we're trying to achieve and, and suddenly, you know, into the objectives. So fast forward 10 years later, 30 million over kind of a billion in market cap, absorbed these 25 brands, one of the largest publishers in the world. What were some of your biggest kind of takeaways from from doing all that? What what were some of the biggest lessons learned on maybe what to do and what not to do? Because that's a that's a tall task. Yeah, it's a really, really good question. And actually brings it back to one of the things we said at the very start. I think that you shouldn't be afraid to recognize if your business our business grew really fast. We doubled in size every two years. The the team that makes you successful when you're 10 million pounds of profit and 50 millions of of valuation is not the same team when you're 250 million pounds of profit and, and, you know, north of a billion pounds of valuation. And so the longer you stay somewhere, I think the more emotional sometimes you can get attached to some of the people because you've been on this journey together. And I think that coming back to that point about staying really true to what's the right thing for the organization, how do we make sure that the organization can prevail is one of my lessons about you know making sure we were always hiring the next the next talent, and I had this analogy about um, soccer where I would always say we were a little bit like an English soccer team moving through the the soccer leagues, and you know the person that wins the fourth division was required to help you win the fourth division, um, but they're not going to play European football. That, you know, you need yeah. someone different to win European football. So recognizing that need to change, I think, is really important. And then I think um, the other big thing that I take away from it is if we had said 10 years ago what would happen with future and we were, where, what it would become, everyone would have told us, don't be stupid. And so I think sometimes you just have to believe in your own conviction. And um, I'm not saying that I missed this all where it would end up in 10 years' time as well, but there was definitely moments where it was like, this is um this is a big bet, but you know yeah. what we're gonna to win you have to go all in, you know, and so we not being afraid to take those big bets. And I think a lot of things that maybe people struggle with themselves or as leaders of teams, like when you talk about needing different things at different stages, I, I don't think it's a, a judgment of 
someone's ability at all. And a lot of times the judgment of what it is they want to be doing, but it seems really hard for people to give up that tort. Like, again, they, they love managing a team of three and now the job is in managing a team of 20 and they're not really doing great at it. Cause it's not what they want to do. It's not, you know, I, I really appreciate the people who, who operate in these stages, right? They come in and this is what an investor does. Like they come in at 10 million and they grow to a hundred and then they go back to 10 and they just realize like, that's what I like to do. I don't like zero and I don't like a hundred million plus. Like, how do you, what's your experience on starting those conversations or getting people maybe to admit the thing that they don't want to admit because they feel like they're giving up or quitting or or otherwise? Yeah. And I, I love the investor analogy because that's exactly the right way to think about it. We were just really honest. We, we, we talked a lot about not everyone's going to be all the way through this journey, including myself. You know, I was like, I'm, you know, there's a point at which this maybe isn't the job that I want to do anymore, you know. Um, And so our job is to kind of make sure we've got talent underneath us, but also be ready to say at the point when, you know, I'm not sure this is fun for me anymore. I think you can generally see it with someone. And when you start to have that conversation with, with them around, are you actually enjoying this? You know, do you feel like you're winning? Nine times out of 10, the answer is no, which allows you to then manage a conversation over six or 12 months. Um, Occasionally, they don't see it, and that's much harder. But I think it's about being really honest in which is you are brilliant at this size of organization and you are brilliant in this environment, but you're just not going to thrive at the next level. So let us help you find something equivalent or similar at the level at which you're brilliant. Yeah, and look, most Fortune 500 CEOs couldn't start a company, right? I mean, no, 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 absolutely. <laughs> no infrastructure, nothing, come up with a prototype. It's just not, it's not either what they're like or what they're trained around or the stage or otherwise. Yeah, that's exactly it. And so I think it's, it's not a judgment. There's not better. It's just different. So, so you hinted to this, but look, you have this extraordinary run, lots of adulations, 30 million to over, uh, you know, billion, um, you know, clearly your star was very bright and, and you made the decision to step down. So maybe the timing was, was good. <laughs> um, you know, <laughs> on that, it's been a hard year for advertising and, and, and publishing, but in terms of thinking about for people, when it is time to move on, when do you go out on top or do you wait I think some people wait sometimes maybe a little too far on, on on the other side of the cliff. You know, you you had done everything there was to do at Future. Um, how did you think about that decision? Was it, did it come to you one day? Was it a long decision? And, and I know you you gave the organization everything some time, but I think it's really helpful for people to think about how, how do we walk away? So I think it's it's really important that, to recognize you you don't own all the good ideas and, and the organization is not just about you. And so one of the things for me was I never wanted to get to the point where people talk about me rather than future. Yeah. You know, and there was a little bit of that creeping in because I was a CEO and we've been so successful. And I really like the US president system. You know, you don't get to do more than eight tar- eight years for a reason because yeah. you, you know, you you start to believe that you're better than you think you are and it just puts a for it's a forcing mechanism for you to decide to call time. I always wanted to choose. I, I always wanted to be my decision rather than and if you don't if you're not careful, someone will make the decision for you. Yeah. And so I actually had planned to go eight years regardless. And then what happened was eight years was a pandemic. And I was like, well, there's no way I'm walking out in the business at this moment in time because you have to steer it through this really unusual 
period. And so I just put my plans back and I thought, well, um, assuming we get through this this unusual environment, then 10 years is the kind of milestone. And so it was 10 years ago now. Um, and in the UK, as a CEO, I had to give 12 months notice. So I had to make my decision at nine years to leave at 10. Um, and, 12 months so, notice. and what happens if you don't? Well, you're kind of contractually bound. And so if you want if you want to keep your reputation, you have to. Right. You, you don't always. But what if you, you just work. said, I'm burnt out and I'm done? Like they, they could force you to come to work every day. Like how does that actually people in the U.S. don't understand how that works. So I'm yeah, just. Yeah. <laughs> they kind of do force you to come to work every day. <laughs> but it's not in anyone's interest. Right. But um, unfortunately, I think I personally didn't get to that point. I mean, it's, it's unusual you end up working the whole 12 months, if that makes sense. Yeah. But I had kind of started to talk about wanting to retire and so the the um the company knew that they needed to start looking for someone else um but yeah so for me it was I, I just decided to put a milestone in rather than kind of like was at the top or you know I th- thought well if you just put a date in and then that's the decision made and that's what you work towards and then you have peace with it it's interesting. First of all, go, but you know, using the U.S. presidential system, I think most people here would wish we had single terms of two years or four years <laughs> yeah. at this point, not not eight. Because the, the problem is they're running for re-election the whole time that they're actually uh, yeah. operating. But I mean, do you think more leaders could benefit from a fixed time period? Obviously, we have some of these iconic leaders in in organizations who have been there forever. I, and I do think those organizations probably are about them. But I always love the quote, like, there is no success without succession. And it would seem like, you know, a, lo- a lot of people probably stay too long. We, I, The problem with focusing on Musk's and Zuckerberg's is, is they're kind of like LeBron James and Michael Jordan. They're like once in a generation or decade, right? And it's kind of the exception that breaks the rule. But do you think most people would be better off saying that doing a term and then knowing that they have to complete their objectives, set up the organization, build the team around them? Like it's an interesting concept. Yeah, it's interesting. So some of the European countries do that model. So you, I think in Germany, you sign up for a, a, yeah. you sign up for a term. I certainly think there should be a challenge after 10 years around, are you still fresh, relevant? You know, so I'm not necessarily sure that a fixed term with the rigidity of that, but I do think there's a point at which you should be saying, okay, we should just as a board be checking here and making sure that we've not fallen into groupthink. I, I'm definitely of the view, which is if you if the business needs you for longer, then you've done a bad job. Exactly as you said, you know, you shouldn't need to be there for, for too long. Right. Or, or or you're making it about yourself. Yeah, exactly. So what's next? How do you well, how do you think about a next next act? Yeah, so I'm really enjoying advising some boards just now and I've got a really mixed portfolio, um, some digital businesses. I was just saying to you before we did this call, I've I'm on a cruise line company in the US, which is really interesting, which I'm really enjoying. And a, a little bit like what happened with, with Future, I, I think it will find me and I will find it, if that makes sense. And, you know, yeah. sometimes you can, I'm a planner and I like to have a career path, but I also think sometimes you have to let serendipity happen as well. So are you looking for, do you think there's a next big thing or do you like the portfolio approach? Isn't it more fun to tell other people what to do rather than actually? <laughs> yeah, I, so at the moment, <laughs> I'm definitely enjoying the portfolio. And I have I still have some some children who aren't all yet at college. 
And so I don't think I've got a big job in me at this moment in time. But yeah. what I do believe is that life is should never be about absolutes. And so, you know, I'm I'm young enough to have be at an age where many people haven't done their first CEO job. Yeah. So it's highly conceivable in five or six years' time, I might decide, hey, I want to do it again, but I might not. So at the moment, I'm really enjoying the portfolio. I'm enjoying the variety. I'm loving being in small businesses and large businesses, um, and you know, one day at a time. Yeah, and I think you said something important there. I, I've had a little bit of it. I've talked to a lot of people, and I it, this seems to come up. You know, sometimes when you're reading the the concepts, find you that you're looking for, but but people who have been very high you know, achievers, they're, they, when they get some sort of space and free time, it can feel very uncomfortable, right? So there's a need or a rush to fill that. But as you're saying, if you're trying to find this right thing, you have to leave space. But then the leaving space thing is is very hard. And so I think this is a, a delicate balance. It's just so easy to take the first five people that call you for a board role even, but maybe the perfect thing is the one a year from now, right? But if you don't if you don't have any openings, then you won't be available. Yeah, that's exactly. It's a little bit of finding husbands. Yeah. <laughs> but exactly. yeah, no, it's, it's, that's exactly it. And honestly, that's been the hardest adjustment for me is, you know, oh, there's nothing in my diary on Friday. What am I going to do? Yeah. You know, oh, nothing. Right. Yeah. There, there's something about that, that silence or that blank space, but, but you need it. And if you fill it, you probably won't fill it with stuff that's inherently as meaningful. That's exactly it. Definitely. Well, you know, one thing I was curious to get your perspective on, we had, had uh, we talked about this, we had had a conversation at a breakfast a few months back that I thought was interesting because look, you're a CEO, you've helped develop a lot of, you, you've, you know, you made it through to the CEO suite. You've helped mentor a lot of other uh, women leaders, um, very focused on diversity, equity, and inclusion. And, but you said something around, you have five boys, right? A combination of, of five boys. And you were saying like, and I thought it was an interesting thing as a sort of a female executive saying, but you were, you were kind of worried about them and how, and how the world sort of viewed them because I, you know, your position of where you are is different where they where they are. How, can you expand on that a little bit? I just, that one stuck with me for a while since we talked. Yeah, absolutely. And I think to preface it, first of all, you know, I fundamentally believe in a meritocracy and I think that people should succeed in their careers because they're good at their jobs. And I think that everyone should have an equal opportunity to demonstrate their merit. And for me, when I think about equality and inclusion and diversity, that sits at the heart of it. Do I have an ability to demonstrate what I can achieve and will I be judged equal to someone else? That's been my mantra all through my career, and, and I really believe in it strongly. And I think that without any doubt, uh, women didn't have an equal opportunity 20, 30 years ago, 10 years ago. And I and I think that for um, some of the other minority groups, I'm not sure that is equal yet. I don't think we definitely have the same, the same paths or the same ease for everyone. But as I look at, at my young sons and I listen to them talk, I think it is quite hard to look at life from where they are. And I think that they become, um, it's hard to navigate, you know, how to be respectful, um, how to make sure they don't cause offence. You know, one of my sons is is immensely pro uh, DE&I, but almost to the detriment of himself, you know, in that regard, which is, you know, that every female has to get the opportunity rather than him. You know, it's really important. I'm like, well, I don't necessarily think that that's what I think equality is about. I think equality is about what I said before, which is everyone has an equal opportunity. And 
if you look at 18 year and I've got lots of nieces and uh, good um, friends who are female, and I'm, I don't want to labor, it's not just a gender point, but I think that there is a quality of opportunity for most women, most young girls coming out of college today. I do think it gets slightly harder as you get, as you decide to be a parent, if that's what you decide to do, because there is a, there is a physical decision that is required and you, and you are away from work for a period of time. And I think we really do need to, that is a, that is a taboo we still haven't quite un, uh, resolved um, around that area. But outside of that, I think that there is definitely equality of opportunity. But if, if anything, it's almost become, you know, you know, a little bit negative on, on the male side just now. And I worry that all that work we did as women to create equality, we've lost a bit of the the genesis of, of the kindness of it, which is actually why, if we know what it's like to not have those opportunities, why would we now want to still be divisive as opposed to inclusive? And that's what I worry a little about a bit about the tonality of where we're going. Right, and I, or that no one, no one should feel that again in the principle of because of who they are or how they were born or their gender or their color is going anything that they are advantaged or disadvantaged or someone perceives them negatively or positively. Right, and that's precisely it, and 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 that's where I, I really genuinely heartfeltly hope and wish that uh, all of the work we're doing in society today around opening up people's awareness and making people aware of their unconscious biases is about making it genuinely equal for all right? and not, you know, disadvantaged for some. Yeah. And so, I, I mean, again, I think a, probably a principle you learn in the leadership suite is that I think we have to be careful applying solutions too broadly, right? You have, you have one problem here in this team and you might not have it in the other team. And if you take that solution everywhere, you may cause a whole nother set of problems, right? But that's exactly it. That is exactly it. And I, and I do think that, um, I mean, I think I might have told you a story, but I, I'll, I will tell it anyway. I am um, so my leadership team was at one point almost universally diverse. So if you kind of looked at the population that I, the countries that I operated in, and then looked at the kind of ethnic diversity, gender diversity, and sexual diversity, we were pretty much hitting population percentages, um, and that was an accident. It wasn't on purpose. It was just the type of organisation we had. We began to skew towards females in the team and suddenly I had a majority of females in my leadership team and I was hiring for a really senior hire and the candidate I wanted to appoint was a female and I find myself having this terrible thinking about oh I can't do that because people think I'm only hiring women and I bias for women and I'm anti-men so I phoned up my chairman who was a man and I said I just need to tell you I've got this thing going on and I feel like I shouldn't hire this person because they're a woman and I've already got 60% of women on the team. And it's kind of crazy. I'm even having this conversation with you, but I need to say it out loud so that, you know, I can hear the, the sanity back. <laughs> and of course he was like, you just hire the right person and you do it for the right reasons. And it's, it's that type of thinking that I worry about, that we start to question our judgment on, I know that I've got equal opportunities, I'm now hiring the right person as opposed to I'm hiring the person that I think people expect to be here as opposed to actually striving for equal opportunity. Yeah, and look, these things are, they're tough. Like there's not, (laughs) there's not an easy answer. But I think that the first thing you said, which was just, we did this, we had this representation, not for anything we were doing specifically, but I think because of the culture and meritocracy and everything we designed, it produced 
an output that represented the population. Like I, I, I think that's probably the the best uh, sort of accolade that you were doing it <laughs> in, in a way that was productive. Yeah, exactly. So uh, outside of work, how, how are you spending your your some of your newfound time when you're not when you're not traveling to cruise ships? Yeah, exactly. So my my CFO, who I've worked with uh, Future and before that for about fifteen years, bought me eight books as my leaving present, <laughs> and she bought me just a wonderful selection. And I'm working through Are these like first edition leather ones or no? No, 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 no <laughs> but, but definitely how to make me a better person books. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um and I've been um I've been really enjoying kind of working through that and a real diversity of, of a real eclectic source of books there. Um and then I do a lot of sport. And it's been, you know, I was talking to somebody, they said, How will you know if you've got the work-life balance right? Yeah. If I can do two hours in the gym and not feel like I'm stressed. <laughs> and so that's the test is, you know, if I get, well, I didn't get any e- urgent emails during my two yeah, hour workout. Exactly. Yeah. Not thinking I've got to get this done so that I can go and get to my, my desk, but actually just enjoy the, the pleasure of, of doing some sport. All right. Great. Well, last question for you. Uh, I, I always call this my multivariant question because it can be singular or repeated or personal or professional but what's a mistake that you've made kind of either in your life or career that you've learned the most from? Oh, that's a really good question. What's a mistake that I've made? I've made lots and lots of mistakes. Um, I think I think it took me a long time to understand, and I said this as a light work, it took me a long time to understand not everyone just gets the logic. You know, I was a very logical person and I hmm. began my early career based on numbers and analytics and facts. And I think I spent the first 10 years thinking, well, here's a logical answer. Therefore, you must understand it. And I hadn't appreciated that unless you make the human connection for some people, they will never come to your side of the road because they don't think in logic. They think in stories or connections. And I look back over the years and I think some of our biggest mistakes were when I was overly analytical and not human enough. That's a great answer. I'm curious. I don't normally ask questions, but I have to. So how did you improve upon that? Was it, did you have to be better at empathy or better at storytelling or what is the. Yeah. So I, I took the feedback quite seriously when I got it. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I went and I went and did a, a degree, a postgraduate degree in behavioral right. change. <laughs> and, I did, and I did that over that, three that years. Is, that is taking feedback seriously. Yeah. <laughs> it really is, isn't it? But I, I did it over a long period because I wanted to understand how teams work what motivates different people, what fires your, your the neurons in your brain. Hmm. And because I had trained as an accountant, I was training myself to be an accountant, you know, so I was literally kind of putting myself through the same rigor, but from the, this is about people rather than about, about numbers. All right. Well, so thank you for uh, joining us to share your story. I'm always impressed by hearing about your journey and, and your leadership and you, you've, you have a, hopefully you have a well-deserved somewhat rest period ahead for you here. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed the time. All right. To our listeners, thanks for tuning in to the Elevate podcast today. We'll include links to Zilla and her work on the detailed episode page at robertglazer.com. If you enjoyed today's episode, as always, I'd really appreciate if you could leave us a review as that's what helps new users discover the show the most. Uh, If you're listening in Apple Podcasts, all you have to do is hit the library icon, click on Elevate, scroll down, and you can leave a rating or review. Thanks again for your support. And until next time, keep elevating.
This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join Podcast Royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.